This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In honor of the Lunar New Year, which begins with the new moon on February 12th and lasts until the next full moon arrives and the Festival of Lanterns takes place, this week we welcome Eric Su, a plantsman of Taiwanese descent. Eric is a well-studied and well-traveled horticulturalist and researcher. For the past decade, he has served as the Plant Information Coordinator at Chanticleer, a world-class public garden in Wayne, Pennsylvania. The more Eric has studied plants and the more he has traveled to learn from and about plants and plants people in the U.S. and in Taiwan, in England, Scotland, and the Australian island state of Tasmania, the more he has been intrigued by the plant journey stories of Asian American immigrants. He joins us today to share more about his own journey and his work unearthing and bringing to light stories about the many contributions of Asian Americans to what we think of as American horticulture. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm happy to have this opportunity to speak with you today. Okay, so, you know, I I described you as a plantsman. I described you as a horticulturalist. And you, in fact, work professionally in the field. Uh, as well as follow quite a bit of personal um, curiosity and interest in researching and documenting specific threads of interest to you in the plant world. Will you describe for listeners your current relationship, personal and professional, with plants and gardens and landscapes, Eric? Well, first of all, I want to say that I've had had a lifelong interest in plants since I was maybe five or six. And last, sometime last year, I was digging through my old photographs uh, taken of me. In one of the photographs I saw, uh, it was taken of me as, as a toddler, smiling and holding a flower in one hand. So I, I guess I always had a very affinity for plants in a natural world. And that really crystallized when my grandparents came from Taiwan and it saved my family for a year. And while they were here, they had started a vegetable garden and I was became very interested in how they were growing the vegetables, the insects, the birds, and the soil. And I think that interaction with natural world really carried through and consequently, I began to grow plants. I even had my parents take me to lawn gardens when I was seven years old. And I remember going to lawn gardens and it was just fabricated by the, the greenhouses, the outdoor displays. And I think that really carried through with me to the point where I started to borrow books from the library on plants and gardens and botanical history. And I, when my parents realized this was actually a serious passion, they encouraged me to order tulip bulbs. Uh, they take me to nurseries to look at plants. And I also I have to admit, I also had a very idyllic childhood. At that time, we had lived in New York, Long Island, New York, and we were five miles from the beach. So on weekends, we would go to the beach and have a beach comb, played it in tidal pools. And then back home, we had a 
woodland behind our house. So I was did some exploring the woodlands. And I think the rest is pretty much uh, basically direct dictated how I saw a prospective career. And so how old were you when your grandparents came from Taiwan to spend the year? I think I was maybe six or seven. And how old were you when you first went to that memorable visit to Longwood Gardens? I was, I believe I was seven because I remember going to Long Gardens for my my grandparents as well. And we, it was a day, it was quite a day trip. Were they your maternal or paternal grandparents, just out of curiosity? Um, the grand, my grandparents were interested in plants and gardens were my maternal grandparents. And they were the ones that also encouraged me plants because when I went to Taiwan one summer, they took my mother and I to a cross-country trip around Taiwan where we visit um, fruit orchards and natural landscapes. I can't say my parents were actually avid gardeners, so I would say it probably skipped a generation. And was your mother born and raised in Taiwan before coming to the United States or... Both my parents were born and raised in Taiwan. Um, they immigrated to United States in the late 70s when my dad decided to go to graduate school at uh, State University of New York in Stony Brook. You mentioned already that even as a boy, you considered working in plants as a viable professional opportunity. Can you tell us about that next stage of the journey, Eric? I think it was interesting. It was an interesting moment for me because I actually had considered going to art school. I had a lot of artistic and creative proclivities towards drawing, drawing and painting. And I used to take art classes outside of my school. I was actually encouraged um, by my mother. And I remember when I was a kid, I would draw endlessly, endlessly until I perfected a depiction of a plan or landscape or building. But I think every parent wants financial security for their children. They actually discourage um, going to art school and they encourage me to pursue plant sciences, which, which seem to have a lot of viable options to pursue careers. So I actually looked at various uh, undergraduate programs for horticulture and, and plant sciences. And so where did you end up going to school and, and what vein of plant science did you uh, pursue, Eric? Um, I, was, I actually went to Cornell University in upstate New York I was, I remember being very excited when I got my college acceptance to Cornell because it was my first choice. It had a long history of horticulture, botany, and in addition to having a long history, there was a renowned professor in horticulture named Liberty High Bailey. And Liberty High Bailey was probably the Renaissance man of his time, I don't even think he actually ever slept. 
but he was a taxonomist who studies sedges and palms. He wrote the influential study of horticulture. He directed, I believe, Cornell Botanic Gardens, which was Cornell Plantations when I was an undergraduate there. Mm -hmm. So I think the combination of the history and ecology's proximity to natural area was a major draw for me when I had considered colleges for plant science. And interesting enough, when I actually went to Cornell, I actually was originally a horticulture major, but I decided that I would go pursue a general plant science major instead, since I was more interested in other aspects of plants beyond the cultivation and production of horticulture crops. So when you say you were interested in other aspects of plants, what what at that point did that mean, Eric? I think my plant interest in plants was not just aesthetic. I also was interested in pathology of plants, insects, propagation, especially tissue culture and taxonomy. And I felt that the curriculum for horticulture at that time was not comprehensive enough for me to satiate my curiosity about plants. So you finish your work at Cornell with a degree in general plant sciences. Where do you go from there? I knew that I wanted to go overseas. And I think that longing to go overseas was motivated by my endless hours reading about botanic gardens and especially those in England and Scotland. So I actually applied for a, a charter scholarship that was administered by the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architect to fund a one-year, I would say, internship overseas. Mm -hmm. So I basically proposed a trip that looked at taxonomy of cultivated plants in England and Scotland. So that included time spent in Cambridge Botanic Garden, Royal Botanic mm. Garden, Edinburgh, mm. Royal Botanic Garden, Kew, and Hilliard Arboretum. And I think by doing that, I was able not only to get full immersive immersion in plants, but also just the history and the British fanaticism for collecting plants. <laughs> and for better or worse, right? But also just really a deep immersion into the culture of plant life and plant love from a, you know, human obsession uh, in that part of the world phenomenon. So you were, you did that for a year. And what did you come out with at, at the end of that? Did you write a sort of dissertation? Did you was there an end product to that year for you or a culminating project rather? It was not really, it didn't really lead to a cumulative project. I think mm -hmm. it was more about finessing exactly where I wanted to go with my experiences. Mm -hmm. And I decided that to, in order to wear different hats that would accommodate my multiple interests in plants, um, pursuing a career in public horticulture was the most possible option. 
so I actually looked at the one year curatorial internship at the Scott Avenue Swarthmore College. Okay, yeah. And I applied and I had a fantastic experience there learning about all falses of public garden management. So what year would that have been that you were in the, the program for public management at Swarthmore? That was 2004 to 2005, and it was actually a one-year curatorial internship where you were working in a curator's office. Describe for listeners who might not be familiar with the some of the um, ways in which these kinds of programs are run. You know, you were learning about facets of public garden and public garden management, and it was in a curatorial office. What does that actually mean? Like, what did you do? What did you learn specifically in this one-year program? And I think in a nutshell, it really encompassed everything from interpersonal relationships and management involving volunteers and student employees, weekend watering duties, learning to accession and map plants, learning how to give lectures and programs, and understanding how a arboretum, botanic garden, or public garden is run from inside out. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the most valuable aspect of this curatorial internship. Sometimes when you study in college, it's not the same as um, working a, a real job, mm-hmm. whether it's an internship or a full-time job. Right. And I would imagine, you know, that you knew a great deal about plants, but, you know, timing, say, the exhibit calendar or laying out um, a collection in a pleasing way with really good interpretive signage and then, you know, planning the promotion of something like that at a, a public garden. Those are the kinds of things you're not taught in college, but that an internship or fellowship like this would give you hands-on experience doing. Like it's an apprenticeship in what it actually means to run a public garden from the, the administration of paperwork and human resources all the way down to making sure the plants are watered and cared for. Is that right? Yeah, that's 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 correct, and I think it's I think one of the things about jobs is that is learning how to communicate, and communication is something that's always a struggle, especially for people who are introverts like me. Mm. So I think one of the things that people tend to um, have challenges nowadays with technology is being able to interact in real life. Yeah. And yeah. I think internships and opportunities like this um, help you bring out of your shell in a way that's not feasible with online communication tools. Yeah. And I think whether, you know, depending on what intensity of introvert a person might be, I think it it's not unusual that people who love plants and move into a deep study of them are an introvert of some, you know, somewhere on that introversion spectrum. So, you know, how we communicate with our plants and the language, for lack of a better phrase, of us with our plants and spaces 
it is just, it requires a very different vocabulary than the verbal world around us. And, and those are good skills to develop too. It's, it's true. So you do this one year intensive at Swarthmore and it feels like a really great experience and it expands you, it sounds like, and grows you a little further along as an effective plants person, especially in public gardening. What do you decide you want to do and and where do you move from there? So I decided I would uh, wanted a little more experience in how public gardens ran, but I think I decided I wanted from the perspective from a university affiliated garden on a larger scale than Scott Abbey and Swathmore was. So I actually had an opportunity to undertake a Putnam Fellowship at the honor Arboretum of Harvard University. And a Putnam Fellowship is considered a research fellowship, not necessarily the same as the curatorship I was doing at Scott Abbey and Swathmore College. And while I was there, I coordinated the multi-institutional maple conservation scheme for the American Public Gardens Association's um, Plant Collections Network. And this is basically a project that involved in getting the curators in different gardens in North America to submit their maple collection holdings and compile them and see what were strong and what were not in terms of the maples being conserved in gardens. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Eric Su is a Taiwanese-American horticulturalist and plant information coordinator at Chanticleer, a world-class public garden in Wayne, Pennsylvania. We'll be right back with more of Eric's plant and garden life story, from his research around the world to his current focus on an abiding interest in the stories of Asian-American horticulturalists and plants people before him. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. You know, I want to point out how much courage it takes to get on a podcast and talk about what you do, what you love, what you grow, and what you believe in, to talk about your own green heart. I've been doing this work since 2008 when I developed my first public radio program for North State Public Radio. That program was a four-minute program which ran on the weekends and was entitled In a North State Garden. When I first started, it was completely foreign to me to speak out and up, let alone broadcast. It made me nervous every darn time I scooted up to the mic in the radio station's recording booth. But I really, really believed in talking about gardens in this way. I am, of course, far more comfortable now, although I still get butterflies and sweaty, really sweaty palms whenever I give a talk. When Eric talked a bit in the first part of our conversation about being an introvert and going out of his way to learn and practice the in-person part of public horticulture because he thought it was such a valuable skill, I thought, wow, that was brave and seriously insightful. 
It's moments like that in an interview that I remember what guts it takes to go on record with me for Cultivating Place. That every time you hear an episode here, it's because somebody was willing to trust me with their voice. An open-hearted, open-garden kind of trust. And it's a trust I feel so lucky to try to live up to. So, to the close to 300 individuals who have joined me here, thank you for that trust. And thank you for bravely sharing your heartfelt garden stories. We are all richer for these shared garden life voices, in my opinion. If you find thinking or modeling or voices or plant conversations of value here on the Cultivating Place podcast, I'd be really grateful if you'd take a moment to share with others exactly what you gain from listening to Cultivating Place in the rating and review sections on Apple Podcasts. To date, there are some great reviews on why people listen and what they love, and there are some quite funny, at least to me, reviews along the lines of me being too woke, or interviewing too many people of color, or once attributing the discovery of a plant to Meriwether Lewis. Trust me, I welcome all constructive criticism, all suggestions, all reviews, because feedback, after all, is how we grow. And you sharing your reviews helps cultivating place grow, too. So thank you in advance. Eric Su is a Taiwanese-American horticulturalist. He is the Plant Information Coordinator at Chanticleer. We'll be right back with more of Eric's plant and garden life story, from research around the world to his current focus on an abiding interest in the stories of Asian-American plants people before him. When we left off, Eric was working on his postgraduate internship compiling a conservation database of maples in public garden collections in the U.S. As we come back, Eric will share his insatiable curiosity and interest in learning more about plants and their stories, from studying heathers in England and Scotland to understanding long-range seed dispersal of plants in Tasmania. I told you, he's well-studied and well-traveled. In a project like that, where you are trying to document the maple collections, and I'm guessing this is across the country, not the globe, but just in American public gardens. Is that right? That's correct. So some of the objectives of doing something like that I'm guessing are, you know, include understanding where some of the um, richest collections are held and then understanding if we know all of the species of maple, you know, native to North America or native to, you know, the, the Northern Hemisphere, and then we see what are in these collections, we can make a determination as to what might be missing in these collections for long-term conservation and potential study or restoration if that was necessary. Am I right? Or, or what would be other objectives? You, um, Jennifer, you pretty much encapsulate what the whole project was about. And it's basically was looking at collections and seeing what conservation priorities were needed. 
And were there were there big gaps or were there great collections that felt really close to, um, you know, where ideal for these situations? Or, you know, what did you take away at the end, not only to do with maples, but to do with tracking conservation and research collections, period, Eric? It makes me, I think one of the things I realized from this was that conservation are only successful if they involve in different institutions. It's, you, you can't mm. really rely on one garden, one institution mm -mm. to preserve these maples since it's such a huge group of plants that have different um, conditions that need to thrive. You might have a, a maple that's subtropical. It may not be hardy in New England, but it may be hardy in Florida or Georgia. And I think that's, it's also about being able to ex take advantage of the different climates in North America for conservation. For you, was there a reason you chose maple or was it assigned to you? What was, what, how did that come to be? Well, um, the Plant Collections Network had already had several plant collections that were recognized. And one of the projects they needed someone to coordinate was the maple project. And I think having been interested in maples for some time and being a common tree in North America as well as Asia, where I'm particularly interested in, I think it felt like a suitable project. You go on to finish this research project. And is it from that that you move to your current professional work? Actually, funny enough, um, no, um, I, I actually decided I wanted to go to graduate school. And I thought one of the things I really thought would be a great way to spread my gospel or plans, my passion, my plans was to teaching. So I, was, I started to have designs on being a professor. Since I wanted to do research and I also wanted to teach, so I thought it was ideal profession. So I figured I needed to go to graduate school. Consequently, I applied for a master's program at University of Reading. And that program was a fellowship with the Royal Horticultural Society. And it was a nice, nice program because it was primarily concerned with taxonomy of cultivated plants, which brought me full circle to my one year I'd spent in, in England and Scotland. So I was working with the botany department at University of Reading and the botany department at Whistley. And they already had several projects they were interested in having me do. The one project I chose was looking at punitive hybrids of South African and European heathers or erica. And that project basically involved in morphometrics. And when I say morphometrics, it basically involves in taking herbarium specimens and taking different measurements of the leaves, Ooh. flowers, and then, you, and then you put it into a matrix of numbers and you feed it into fluid analysis and DNA. So basically I was collecting samples from live plants, grinding them up and so I can get sequences. So it's generally when um, plants are hybrids, they, sh they share base parents from um, both parents. So it's not, it's very similar how we have genes from both parents ourselves. 
and that was uh, one year, and that was basically a, a master's program. What are you trying to learn from collecting this much data on the you know these morphometrics? I think the morphometrics is actually more the traditional aspects of taxonomy before the introduction of modern DNA or molecular technology. Mm-hmm. And basically, sometimes morphometrics enable you to, to pinpoint or hone on intermediate physical traits that may in- indicate hybrid characteristics. Okay. And, then, and then the DNA and molecular work confirms the morphological aspect of the research. Okay, okay. And, okay, so you do this, then where do you go? Um, so this is actually another how every um, experience I have have become intertwined, interrelated. Yeah. Basically, when I was in England, the same year, I did the one-year travel scholarship from my alma mater. I became interested in a plant, uh, a British plant collector who had traveled to Chile, Argentina, and Australia, and especially Tasmania. And I always wanted to go to the Southern Hemisphere, kind of like to balance my experiences in the Northern Hemisphere. So I actually applied for a, another graduate program in um, Tasmania, Australia. And I was in Australia for three and a half years. And what were you doing there? I was looking at their long, dis- long-term, long-distance dispersal, seed dispersal, and, and comparing the plants that I had dispersed in Tasmanian from seed or they were whether they were a result of the, the, what do you call it, the continental, when all the continents were were joined together before they separated. Right. And basically, and basically seeing what had more of a ancient origin and those that had more recent origin, whether they were dispersed by wind, water, or birds or animals. So I think that experience gave me a really nice compliment because I was able to look at plants in a while in Tasmania. And I think it was a nice compliment to what the same plants I had seen in gardens in, in, in England and Scotland. So keep going. Where do you go from this? Okay, what and the the person who inspired you to do this? Harold Coomber, the British plant explorer. So you finish up this project in Tasmania, uh, studying the relationship of seed dispersal over time and space and dispersal mechanism, which sounds fascinating in and of itself, Eric. And where do you decide to go from there? I think I was when I came back to the United States after being in Australia, I was kind of trying to wait what might be a viable options to combine my dual interests in plants the scientific aspect of plants, the aesthetic aspect of plants, and the people aspect aspect of plants. And and I found myself turning back again and again back to public horticulture. And one it happened that my return to Australia from Australia to the United States consistently with 
the job opening at Chanticleer. And that position was the plant information coordinator and basically was plant records. But I felt that even though it was plant records, I had the opportunity to educate and inspire people as kind of like you grow into the job. Well, and it is such a perfect sort of confluence of all the things you're interested in, in the midst of a nationally recognized collection. So what year was this that you joined Chanticleer as the plant information coordinator? That was in June 2011, and I'm nearing my decade as a Chanticleer. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Eric Su is a Taiwanese-American horticulturalist. We'll be right back with more of Eric's plant and garden life story in honor of Lunar New Year. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, I recently had the fun of being interviewed for another podcast called Mother Daughter Earth, produced by a mother-daughter team based in Dallas, Texas. When it airs, I will be happy to share a link with you all. One of the great questions they asked me was this, if you were a garden tool, what would you be? And it didn't even take me one second. I said, I would be a willow basket, a basket in which you pick flowers or you pick seeds or you gather beets or whatever it is you gain in your garden, you pick and you put in your gathering basket. That's what I would be, a willow basket. Now I'm wondering, what would you be? I would love to hear what garden tool you would be if you feel like sharing. Leave me a comment on Instagram or send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com, and I'd be happy to share the collection of answers with others here on the podcast in the coming weeks. We're back now with Eric Sue plant information coordinator at Chanticleer Garden in Pennsylvania. After his years of studying and traveling in pursuit of plant knowledge, it was perhaps in joining the staff at Chanticleer 10 years ago that Eric was able to begin collating and compiling more methodically his many collected stories about Asian Americans in horticulture here, from the Civil War through to the atrocity of the internment era of World War II, to today. As we come back, Eric takes us into his research and ever deeper understanding of Asian American contributions to American horticulture. So you get to Chanticleer, and is it at this point that you start doing deeper study into the history and traditions of uh, plants of the Asian diaspora? Or take us into that topic, Eric. And I think the history of plants connected to humans has always been an enduring interest. So just like I explained with my interest in Tasmania stemmed from my interest in Tasmanian Argentinian plants collected by Harold Coomber, the British plant explorer, I'd also just started collect mm-hmm. plants, stories about plants from China, Japan, Korea, 
And I think it ties in nicely with my Taiwanese heritage because Taiwan, like mm -hmm. China, Japan, and Korea, has been explored for its perspective plans for gardens. Along the way, I felt there were gaps in the narrative. So I started to collect uh, clippings and articles, whether it was online or from magazines of plants that were connected to Asia and particularly um, Asian Americans. I guess for someone who's, who's Taiwanese American, it was a little, I guess it was a little confusion, confusing for me to navigate the, I guess, the lack of diversity in public horticulture. Yeah, yeah. Because we certainly know a lot about Asian plants, right? But we don't know very much at all about the Asian plants people that have tended and uh, carried these plants with them uh, around the world. Tell us a little bit about sort of maybe when you started collecting these um, these clippings and these stories and when your own consciousness said, I really, I want to kind of keep, keep these all together. I want to start documenting them in a similar way to how you um, track information on individual plants or research um, taxonomy in, in other parts of the world. I think it really started about how Japanese plants were introduced in North America. And I was trying to figure out who were responsible for some of the interesting um, chrysanthemums, lilies, cherries that came to into our home gardens. And I noticed that um, Yokohama Nursery was one that frequently came up again and again. And Yokohama Nursery was actually um, a Japanese nursery that was very clever to capitalize on the Japanese or the J Japan the craze for all things Japanese, because Europe and North America, U.S. became infatuated with Japanese things after the gunboat diplomacy of Komoro, Komoro Perry, who forced Japan to op open its ports and consequently pave way for its industrialization. And I think at this point onwards, I was wondering whether if there were any connections between the ch Japanese immigrants who were coming to the United States around the middle of 19th century to make um, Make kind of make sense of what they were doing for their livelihoods and what kind of professions and whether they were any of them more connected with horticulture. So when you say Yokohama uh, Nursery, that is the well-known nursery in Japan. Well, Yokohama Nursery actually had two branch offices in San Francisco and New York. Uh, okay. And and be, and because they had offices, they were more or less facilitated importation of plants direct from Japan to North America. And when were they first established with those uh, American offices? They were established in um, 1890. So they opened the San Francisco branch in 18, 
1890, and then they opened a New York branch in 1898. So in 1945, which was when World War II broke out, that was when they were forced to close all the overseas um, branches. And so did they close them and then sort of just reconsolidate back in Japan or what happened to their offices here? No, they never reopened their offices in the United States. Um, they still maintain their business holdings in Japan. I believe their company is actually still in business. But, but not in a way they were at that point of influencing the garden plant culture in the United States. I don't know if Yokohama was the first story that really piqued your interest, Eric, but maybe walk us through chronologically how this curiosity got started for you and how you have progressed with it. Okay. So I think the Yokohama nursery was basically like the tip of the iceberg, that paved way to see whether there were other um, Asian-owned or Japanese-American businesses. Mm -hmm. And I guess what happened was Yokohama led me to uncover the Dotomo Nursery. And the Dotomo Nursery was one that was started um, with three brothers in 1885. And that was started in Oakland, California. And it started growing um, chrysanthemums and carnations for cut flowers. But I think along the way, as this business grew and became successful, it expanded to import camellias, wisterias, azaleas, and lilies from Japan. Sort of like how the Yokohama was doing the same way, facilitating the importation of these plants to gardens in North America. And wow. I... I think it's also a narrative that people don't realize. I think it's because we don't acknowledge I, the different, sometimes we don't really acknowledge the contribution of different immigrants in our garden history. That's an understatement, but yes, yes. And so keep so keep going from, from there. Uh... I think that the whole, the whole, the, the whole story behind the Domoto nursery kind of, open up more stories about the Japanese Americans legacy in California because they were the ones that were, um, they created a thriving kava industry as well as a nursery industry when they arrived in from Japan. I think a lot of these Japanese, when they come from overseas, the agriculture was was primarily the main ways they were able to make a living because they were unable to break into other professions, established professions in the United States. And I think the language barrier and an unfamiliarity with how um, business is being done in the United States also pushed them into agriculture. And I think it's just natural that aptitude for Growing plants would come through about through nurseries. And I think nurseries, cutflower nurseries and watermelon plant nurseries, I guess are a way of creating beauty and especially beauty on um, in a foreign lands. And I think there's a lot of comfort derived from growing growing plants. And I think that the Motor Brothers Store Nursery is very interesting because it also shows a bit how um, trans, trans, trans generational interests 
can carry over. And I think it let me choose seeing how the culture can be um, inspirational, especially for people of color and Asian Americans who may not realize that the US had a prior history with uh, nurseries and connected with uh, Asian immigration. Yeah. And a really long, deep, rich history, right? I mean, when you think about the number of culturally significant plants that were introduced into North America in that time period you're talking about, late 1800s through the the wars, and then the obscuring of that beautiful tradition and and then there was this abrupt you know closure of understanding and like stop to that narrative with the internment um era and and you see some interesting to me having grown up in Colorado there were so many great cut flower traditions that started up in Colorado after the end of the internment era because of the internment camps that were in Colorado that held uh, Asian Americans who had who who then just stayed in in the region, which hadn't really occurred to me until I started following your work and uh, and all of a sudden, your work illuminated for me like why how they got there and why they were there which is beauty born of tragedy eric but um but to see this narrative start to be re-illuminated gives me incredible hope somehow i I also feel like you have to understand that asian americans and asian immigrants face a lot of racism and discriminatory acts Mm. that challenged their ability to make the United States their home. Um, it, it actually goes all the way back to the after the Civil War. I mean, if you look at the Nationalization Act of 1870, basically anyone but that had African ancestry were denied um, citizenship. So basically anyone of color besides African-Americans were, were not eligible for citizenship. And then you have uh, more um, acts that really, really, really can be, were really demoralizing. You have the California alien, alien land law, which basically prohibited aliens or immigrants that were not citizens from owning or leasing land for longer than three years. Between 1870 and 1913, I think they were able to purchase and own land. And for the case of the Demotos, they were able to purchase land before the alien land law went into effect. And I guess any subsequent land ownership came, came upon their children who were born in the United States. And I think the really crushing aspect was the Immigration Act of 1924. And that was basically the government, US government set quotas on how many people could immigrate from civic countries. And that basically halted a lot of uh, immigration from, from Japan and China and, and other countries. 
And then of course, then you have the executive order of 19, sorry, executive order 1966, which was basically the interment of Japanese Americans in Colorado um, and uh, other um, states that had internment camps. Yeah. I feel like the work you are doing, which I hope continues to grow and perhaps take an even more tangible form. There are m multiple people in California who are, you know, actively lifting and um, expressing and sharing the history and and celebrating the history in in these narratives. Uh, what do you see going forward? What would you like to do with some of these stories? Well, I think my I think the opportunities I've been given here are and the opportunities that were given to my parents when they immigrated from Taiwan to the United States was a result of the civil rights movement, and that was when the U.S. Congress basically eliminated or abolished the restrictive acts that were discriminatory and, and exclusive, and basically excluded people of color um, from a lot of um, land ownership, etc. I think that I really feel like I have, I'm really indebted to the prior Asian immigrants who came and made their work belt in the United States. Consequently, I feel I also, as part of my interest in plants and people, I like to take it to, to stories I've been learning and collect them and write them in a way that people must, like myself are able to read and also see as a perspective role model, say they ever are interested in horticulture or plant sciences as a career. I can't wait to read that book, by the way. Is there anything you would like to add uh, beyond my saying to listeners, if you are interested in these stories and some of these lines of inquiry Eric is following, uh, make sure to follow him on Instagram or on his website, Plinth et al., where he uh, puts out some of the stories as he is uncovering them and researching them and thinking about them. Uh, beyond that, is there anything else you would like to add? I think of two things. I think one thing that struck me when I was researching uh, Tochi Demoto was the fact when he said in his oral history that when you grow plants, you can't have hate in your heart. And I think this plants are giving our connectionism, they, they pacify our insecurities and our emotions in a way that we're all interconnected. And I think that's the one lesson I'd like to impart to your listeners. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today and for your illuminating research and sharing it out with, with the world and, and the plant world specifically. Well, I want to say thank you so much, Jennifer, for, for giving me this opportunity to speak about my interest in plants and the interest in narratives of um, people and plants.
In honor of Lunar New Year, which begins with the new moon on February 12th and lasts until the next full moon arrives and the Festival of Lanterns takes place, this week we spoke with Eric Su, a plantsman of Taiwanese descent. Eric is a well-studied and well-traveled plantsman and researcher. For the past decade, he has served as the Plant Information Coordinator at Chanticleer, a world-class public garden in Wayne, Pennsylvania. The more Eric has studied plants and the more he has traveled to learn from and about plants and plants people, from the U.S. to Taiwan to England, Scotland, and the Australian island state of Tasmania, the more he has been intrigued by the plant journey stories of Asian American immigrants. He joined us today to share more about his own journey and his work unearthing and bringing to light stories of the many contributions of Asian Americans to what we now think of as American horticulture. And mark your calendars. On Wednesday, March 24th, from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Eric will be giving a virtual lecture for Wave Hill Garden entitled, Uprooted, the untold stories of Japanese-American influence on our gardens. For registration and information, make sure to go to cultivatingplace.com forward slash podcasts and look for this week's episode show notes. Join us again next week as we continue our celebration of Asian horticultural stories and influence when we take a virtual visit to the Tokachi Millennium Forest on Hokkaido in northern Japan. We will be joined by head gardener Midori Shintani, one of the 75 women in my book, The Earth in Her Hands, as well as the British garden designer Dan Pearson. Their new book on the Tokachi Millennium Forest and its display gardens is available now. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and the podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com. Make sure to check out this week's episode show notes with some really inspiring images from Eric's research and work and the stories he is tracing of influence and contributions by Asian Americans to American horticulture. Have you loved your cherry blossoms today? How about your peonies or hostas or chrysanthemums or so many more? Together, we grow far more interesting. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Thank you.